Good morning. Hello. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm fine. How are you? Not a bad. You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where I neither recommend getting stoned nor singing all night long. Hello and welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This is an internet radio show dedicated to bringing you coverage of the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Maynard. Guy Gardner's off on assignment tonight. Well, he's off on permanent assignment because last week we closed out his comic, so that was sad. But Tom was Very there sad. But this time we're out, we're going to be having an extra special guest in the character of Green Arrow. And not the Oliver Queen Green Arrow, but the the modern, as of the 1990s, Green Arrow in Connor Hawk. And it's hard-traveling heroes the next generation with Jean-Luc Picard and Captain Riker, kind of. Not, not really. But to cover these issues, I've called upon one of the uh, greatest podcasters out there who... Oddly enough, really doesn't have that much to do with Green Arrow, but he's been more than willing to come on the show and talk about him. He is the host of From Crisis to Crisis. He's also the host of Views from Longbox. He co-hosts on Pad Smash, on Back to the Bins. He's pretty much, if you're listening to a comic book podcast, he's probably on it. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my deep pleasure to welcome back to the show, Mr. Michael Bailey. How's it going today, Mike? Ah, it's going okay, even though I kind of jumped the gun a little earlier. Sorry about that. That is all That is all good. I appreciate you coming on the show, especially, you know, since I never would have uh, took you for a Green Arrow fan. Uh, it's it's not so much that I, uh, I have a, a, an attachment to Green Arrow. It's just, one, you know, when you had me on with, with Thomas DJ when we were talking about 50 and 51, uh, I love this era of Green Lantern. And... I remember vividly back in 96. This is kind of a weird time for me collecting because I, I was out of work for a little bit and I couldn't really afford comics, but the shop I was going to saved everything for me. So I remember vividly getting buying all those books and discovering that you know they had done this hard-traveling heroes the next generation because back when I was like 18, they released two trades of the original series and I gobbled those up. So it was just neat for me as a fan of Kyle to see, you know, the next generation of that. And I really wasn't all that familiar with Connor at the time. Uh, I have since gotten a little bit more familiar with him. But Green Arrow is one of those characters in the DC Pantheon that I always want to be there. I may not want to follow him, but... And he's not like the Magnificent Seven level of hero. Yeah. But he's, he's, it's, it's like Hawkman. You know, I may not be all that much into Hawkman, but darn it, I want Hawkman to be there because he was on the Super Friends and I had his action figure. <laughs> so that's important. No, seriously, it is. That, 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 that kind of stuff is important to me. So. No, I agree. There, I mean, there are certain characters out there that you need to have with the big group. I mean, yes, the Magnificent Seven is important, but if you, delete all the ancillary characters it waters thing down and it, it sort of diminishes the whole entirety of the dc universe the the bigger picture of the dc universe so but uh yeah we're going to be covering issues 76 of green lantern and uh, 110 of green arrow today so 
after this break, we will be coming back with my coverage of Green Lantern number 76. Mr. Scott, shall we give the Enterprise a proper shakedown? I would say it's time for that, sir. I... Before this drama unfolds, we give welcome to the ones named Kirk and Spock. You! What planet is this? Which one of you is the captain? Violate the treaty, Captain. Sir, someone is stealing the Enterprise. What are you scratching at? <laughs> Humans make illogical decisions. every episode of the classic original TV series in randomly selected order on the second Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.com. In the decade of the 1930s, even the great city of Cleveland, Ohio, was not spared of the ravages of the Great Depression. In a time of fear and confusion, a character emerged that would entertain and inspire millions of children and adults alike. He began not as flesh and blood, but as a simple line drawing. His comic book adventures thrilled millions around the world. The magic of radio gave to his name a breathless signature and sound. Then with television came a whole new generation to idolize his exploits. In the 70s, the world believed a man could fly. In the 80s, he was reborn in the comics and the 90s saw his death, rebirth, and marriage. In the 21st century, he returned to the big screen and saw his origin changed and retold on several occasions. Through the decades, he has gone by many names. The Man of Tomorrow, the Last Son of Krypton, the Man of Steel. His strength is incredible. His name is legendary. His battle is never ending. Faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound.
My name is Michael Bailey, and I host an internet radio show called Views from the Longbox. Superman is my favorite character of all time, and in 2013, he is turning 75. Because of this, a large portion of the episodes this year will be about the Man of Steel in a series I'm calling Superman, Superman at 75, 75, the celebration, celebration of a legend. I'm going to mark Superman's birthday in fine style by examining all aspects of the character's history, from the comics, to the movies, to the television series, and beyond, both alone and with the best and brightest of the podcasting world. It may not be every episode, but the bulk of views in 2013 will be all about the Man of Steel. He is the first and greatest superhero of them all, and he deserves no less. Superman at 75. The celebration of a legend. A series within a series, and the biggest birthday card a fan can give his favorite hero, only at Views from the Long Box. Views from the Long Box is a Fortress of Bailey-Tude production. New episodes drop every other Tuesday over at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, and for this series, over at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we are back. So let's go ahead and take a look at Green Lantern number 76. It was cover dated late July 1996, released on May 22nd, 1996. Thanks again. Go out to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics for giving me that information. Cover price comes to $1.75 US and $2.50 Canada. The title was Hard Traveling Heroes, The Next Generation Part 1, Family Traditions. The writer was Ron Mars, penciler was Paul Pelletier, anchor Romeo Tangall, colorist Pat Rambo, letterer Albert Guzman, associate editor Eddie Braganza, and editor Kevin Dooley. In a back alley of a seedy era area of San Francisco, a group of thugs plan on having their way with a young working girl, quote-unquote. But before they can get the frightened female out of the few clothes that she's wearing, an arrow pierces the hand of one of the attackers an arrow fired by a young Connor Hawk, also known as Green Arrow. Connor jumps into the fray, painfully but non-lethally taking out the thugs, until he gets a lead pipe to the back of his skull. Normally this would be the end of the Emerald Archer, but fortunately for him, Kyle Rayner, the Green Lantern, is there to help him take down the thugs. The duo bashes their way through the hoodlums, saving the girl from a horrible sexual assault. However, after an awkward kiss delivered to Green Arrow, the girl heads out to find some random John who'd be willing to pay for a similar experience. Green Arrow wonders why Green Lantern has come all the way to his neck of the woods, and GL says that he's looking for his father, and since Green Arrow has some experience in finding long-lost fathers, maybe he could lend a hand. Climbing to the rooftop, the two reveal their secret identities to each other, as Connor says that he might know someone who can help. Cut to a local coffee shop, where plain-clothed Kyle and Connor meet up with Ed B Eddie Fires, chain-smoking Jim Gordon lookalike. Eddie says that he knew an Aaron Rayner when he was in the military, and he's used his military contracts to track down his last known address. Thrilled at the prospect of finding his father, Kyle and Connor head back to a small town outside Lincoln, Nebraska via ring construct jet, piloted, of course, by a buxom lady Blackhawk wannabe. Connor asks Kyle about how he came to be Green Lantern, and we're treated to a little bit of Thomas DJ. Flash! 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 
Kyle relates the tale of getting the ring in the back alley of a club, figuring out how to use it, and finding off the ring's former owner, Hal Jordan. Connor gives his own backstory with him finding out that he was the son of Green Arrow, joining a monastery and training to take Ollie's place. The hero's backstory is accounted for, Kyle lands the jet, and the two get something to eat at the local diner. After an encounter with an overly eager waitress is completely lost under oblivious Connor, Kyle asks his friend if he's not into the ladies, to which he replies that he's not gay, but that being raised in a monastery, he's never even kissed a girl. Ever the playa, Kyle starts flirting with the waitress in an attempt to show Connor how to interact with women. Okay. Unfortunately, this doesn't go unnoticed by the local sheriff, who happens to be the waitress's father. He and his deputies say that they don't take kindly to city folk making plays at the local women folk. And rather than quietly leave, Kyle makes a scene and punches the crap out of the deputy. Embarrassed by Kyle's outburst, Connor joins in the Fighting McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, All Rights Reserved, which makes sure that Kyle didn't end up dead or in pokey. Taking their leave, the duo head to the listed home of Kyle's father. A knock at the door reveals a woman with a young child, but no Aaron Raider. However, the woman knows where the man who sold them the house had moved, and he's moved to a little town called Desolation. And there you go with Green Lantern number 76. Hey, Mike, go ahead and uh, give us some notes on this. Well, the the cover is, of course, a homage to the original Green Lantern, Green Arrow first issue back in, well, oddly enough, Green Lantern, Green Arrow number 76. Yes. Uh, back in the early enough. 70s. So I wonder if this was planned all along. I, I, I couldn't tell, but I, it didn't even occur to me when I put wrote my notes up that this is the same issue number as Green Lantern, Green Arrow number 76. So maybe it was. Uh, and it, it, I, I really kind of like the fact that it says, stop, this is the new, new Green Lantern, <laughs> Green Arrow. It's kind of like, it's kind of like, you know, you're buying brand new version of Tide or your brand new fabric softener. So that's the new, new Green Lantern. Yeah, I like that. I have not read this story since 1996. And I had forgotten almost how much I loved Paul Pelletier mm -hmm. on this title. Uh, his, I remember when he came onto the book, I was uh, I was a little put off that uh, you know Daryl Banks was leaving, but you know he Pelletier kind of had a slicker style uh, that developed very quickly. If you look at his early issues of Outsiders, for example, it's it's kind of rough, but here he's got a, a slicker style, and it probably has to do with the fact that he has such a great inker uh, in veteran Romeo Tangal, mm -hmm. uh, who who has been you know who worked on the original New Teen Titans series, so you know he goes back quite a ways. Yeah, I I, I agree with you. I've really when Pelletier came in to take over for Banks for a while, I was kind of uncomfortable with him. I mean, it was a different style. I'd gotten used to it, but now that he's been on the uh, book for this long and he, I, uh, it was actually more enjoyable to see Pelletier's work. In fact, uh, a recent issue, number 74, Daryl Banks came on to do uh, the story arc with uh, Kyle and Donna Troy and John Stewart meeting up with this uh, alien character, Graven and fighting him. And, Banks's artwork, I think it was kind of 
it felt kind of rushed because Pelletier had this uh, sort of dynamism in uh, drawing the characters' faces, so it you got a lot of more a lot more emotion out of the faces. And with Banks's work, it looked it looked more like he was drawing models, so there wasn't that sort of look in the characters' faces where you could see what their emotions were. So I I really enjoyed uh, Pelletier on the artwork, and I know he's doing big stuff now in the new 52 drawing the oh, yeah. man book so yeah that's that's a huge book to be on right now it's oh, one yeah. of dc's better sellers mm-hmm. so it's a it's good to see that he's uh he's still getting work because uh, a lot of these 90 90s guys just uh, seem to just kind of go away getting into the the first couple of pages this is one of those this is a really upsetting way to to begin this story i mean these guys are, are really going to assault this woman mm-hmm. but on the other hand, I look at the thugs and and I and I go, you know, in the eighties, if you read Marvel comics especially, you would have leather jacket wearing, th- you know, street gangs. You know, one guy would have like the leather jacket vest. Other people would be wearing leather, you know, just you know, straight on leather jackets. And one of them would always have a mohawk. How do you know this is a nineties thug? <laughs> well, he's got douchey uh, facial hair. Long scraggly hair with a do rag, and Eddie Vedder issued uh, flannel shirt. Yeah, uh, on this this is the grunge thug. I guess mm-hmm. is the best way to refer to it. And again, I hate to comment on this in the art, and I I bitched about this before, but this is another case of them just using the the Microsoft Paint fill coloring here mm-hmm. because the grid lines across the entire uh, artwork of it are absolutely straight there's it's they didn't draw it in so that just kind of bugs well at least on that first on that second panel on page one afterwards it looks like they did a little bit more drawing of it and making it sort of uh wave with the government but yeah these are these are very stereotypically 90s thugs (laughs) but um it's it's a dynamic opening scene Mm-hmm. Uh, I like it quite a bit. Green Arrow looks really awesome on page two, mm-hmm. uh, kind of in the shadows. Two arrows in the quiver, uh, just just ready to go. The on page three, the kick that he delivers in the second panel is kind. Some artists, when they do like a martial arts kick, it looks a little rubbery, and that's that's the case here, where that that leg looks like it's doing something it really shouldn't be doing, you know, but. Yeah. Then again, I'm I'm picky with that kind of stuff. So yeah, it does look a little a little too curved upward, but uh, and the the way he's pointing his toe, yeah, it's it's a bit off. But I will give them, uh, you know, the setup of the fight and the choreography of it. You can tell that from one panel to the next, there's a progression of the fight. Yes. it's not like some other fights where they're punching one person in one scene and then in the next panel it's completely different. There's, there's a flow to this fight. And I, I like the fact that, uh, Pelletier actually looks like he planned it out because it moves from Connor hopping down off the trash cans to shooting the arrow. Then you see the arrow going through one person and him kicking the person. So it's, it's all really well, it's all really well choreographed and it's something that people don't have to do for a comic, but you know, the fact that they're doing it here is really nice. I'm kind of curious how Connor would have gotten out of this, because obviously he would have gotten out of this mm-hmm. uh, without Kyle showing up. But Kyle shows up, and 
I had nearly forgotten how much fun Kyle had with his constructs. On page five, you have that barbarian Conan-looking woman, mm-hmm. uh, like She-Hulk cosplaying as, you know, <laughs> Brom. <laughs> um, though it's also really funny that in the third panel, he switches up to a male fist mm. uh, with really hairy arms. But no, it's just just a fun scene to introduce these people. But what I love most of all about this introduction is that, yeah, it you know, we can get in and, and talk all day about how women are objectified and women are victims, blah, 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 blah. But we have this woman who was going to be sexually assaulted by this group. And Mars really doesn't pull any punches on page six that right after it happens, she heads back out there. Yeah, and this is this is something I was kind of, you know, I was kind of you know wanting to touch on, but uh, kind of felt uncomfortable, like because yes, this is a person who just almost lost her life because of unfortunately the way she was presenting herself and because of her vocation. chosen job, yeah, her chosen vocation, uh, and even though you know Kyle gives her the idea, maybe you need to look for a different job. She's like, you know, a girl's got to do what a girl's got to do, and she walks off to to the possibility of having something like this happen again. So it's not really a, it's not really a statement of female empowerment or it's a statement of, you know, uh, this this is how it is. Yeah. (laughs) It's just the way it is. And it's approached. I think it's approached in a way that's not too controversial and doesn't really, it gives the reader an idea. It gives the reader something to think about on their own. One thing I will say is that, uh, uh, with Pelletier, I, and it's not just the fact that she's wearing practically nothing, but I like the way Pelletier draws his women. Uh, yes, they uh, are she, very, very nice. Very curvy. Uh, one of the things on page six that uh, I kind of liked as a detail is that you see the pockets mm-hmm. of the jean shorts uh, sticking out of the bottom of them. Mm-hmm. And that's, I don't think that's something that a lot of artists would have thought to draw, you know, if you're drawing. So, cause you know, they, they, you know, you focus on the bustier, you focus on the fishnets. Uh, the fact that she kind of looks like black canary probably doesn't hurt. Um, though I, I doubt they would, well, they could probably call her pretty bird, but it would probably, you know, more than <laughs> likely cost extra, but it, it's just really funny to see, to see that level of detail put into a character that after this, we don't see anymore. Mm-hmm. And I, I appreciated that because it, it, it gave this one of the things about this entire storyline is that and, and this era of DC is that you're taking established concepts and you're kind of turning them on their head. You know, this is Green Lantern and Green Arrow teaming up. But at the same time, it's it's different because it's two different characters and it's how they would react together. This in a bizarre way is the new version of saving the woman in the alleyway. Cause most of the time she, you know, it's, you know, she, you know, she gets saved and she's thankful and she goes back to her normal life here. It's a little grittier and it's, mm-hmm. it's not like gritty for the sake of being, we're being real and hardcore and all that, but more of, well, you know, sometimes some of the people they save are like this. Mm-hmm. So well, it's just the unfortunate, the unfortunate fact of the way some people are. I mean, 
some people feel that this is the only thing that they can do. And it's, it's difficult for some people to make changes. And despite the fact that this is a frightening encounter that happened to her, doesn't mean that she's going to automatically go, well, I need to reevaluate my life and see about, you know, maybe, uh, uh, going to a vocational school or anything. So, yeah. You know, it's, it's, uh, kind of moving on, but page eight, it's kind of funny. I thought it was cool that Kyle and Connor revealed their secret identities to each other. But really, at this level, it's like, my name's Kyle Rayner. Oh, okay, I'm Connor Hawk. Oh, okay. It's not like, oh, by the way, I'm Bruce Wayne. <laughs> you know, a, a known figure. Or I'm Clark Kent. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, they... Which kind of has that holy crap thing here. It's just like, oh, you're just a dude. Okay. <laughs> and I'm just a dude, too. We're dudes. We're, we're, we're the guys, you know? <laughs> well, I... I think it's I think it's nice because they 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 are both mass heroes, but yes, they don't have that sort of name recognition that the big names of Clark or Bruce would have. But yeah, it, it is nice that they have this trust with each other, even though I think they have only met like a couple of times before. I think they met in a Green Arrow run a few issues back in Green Arrow, like 107, where uh, I think Connor came to New York. For some reason, I can't. I, I yeah, they. It was. It was when he was. Um, wasn't it when Kyle was on his little walkabout? I think it might have been. Yeah. Which is how he began, 1996, if I'm remembering correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the whole quest thing. We uh, we meet Eddie. Eddie fires. Um, it's kind of funny because I'm I'm familiar with Eddie from this storyline and from the little bit of Green Arrow that I've read during Chuck Dixon's run, where Eddie is treated as kind of like the 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 bad uncle for Connor, you know the the guy that's trying to teach him the way of the world. Re, uh, last at the end of last year, I read like the first twenty some odd issues of the Mike Grell Green Arrow series, where Eddie was first introduced, and it's a completely different character. Really. Uh, he's an amoral killer. I mean, he's an amoral killer here, but there he's just like kind of crazy. See, cause, so cause I really want to read the develop. I'm sorry. I just want to read the development and see how he got from that point to this point. See, cause here, yeah, he seems like he, he's the bad guy with the heart of gold. He's, he's sort of the, not really dirty, hairy character, but the guy who would, who's not afraid to get his hands dirty, but he's doing it for the right reasons Uh, to hear that, you know, in the grill era that he was just basically, you know, an amoral killers or or at least an amoral characters kind of unusual. At least at first Um, it could be that something happens along the way. And he, you know, he develops as a character because it was really like his first two appearances that I read, but he was pretty much, he, he was kind of presented as crazy uh, in, in a lot of ways, which which isn't a bad thing. Don't get me wrong. It's just uh, it was just funny reading that and then coming back to this and really wanting to see where that where that di- where that difference happened, where that evolution happened. Is it that Mike Grell developed the character over the course of his run and then Chuck Dixon just picked that up and, and worked with it? Or did Chuck Dixon take that character and tweak it a little bit to serve his own needs? So at some point, I'm I'm working on getting an entire run of this uh, of this Green Arrow series, and I'm about ten issues away. So I'm really trying not to get too deep into it because I don't want to get to that point where I don't have the next issue. Mm-hmm. 
because it's it, it's just kind of sad at that point. But uh, <laughs> but I like Eddie. I like the fact that Eddie is smoking in this place. He's not supposed to be smoking in this place, and he's constantly complaining that there is no ashtray. I, um, on the panel on the panel on page ten, where Connor's obviously pointing out, uh, look, no smoke in. Yeah, it's, it's nice that Connor is kind of this person who's sort of out of place in normal society, and that he's always trying to follow the rules. And I, you know, I, it makes a nice dynamic between him and obviously this more. I don't. I don't want to use grim and gritty, but this more this more earthy character, this character who doesn't follow by the rules, and placing him with Connor, who is completely following the rules. So. Yeah, Connor is very naive, but I like the fact that he is never presented in a golly gee whiz sort mm-hmm. of way. Well, he's naive, uh, but yeah, he's not. He's naive, but he's not an, an imbecile. He's not unaware of things. He's just not tuned into him the way that people who've had experience in the real world would be. So we, we get a nice little scene with them in the, in the, in the plane construct. And I like the fact that he's just not flying them, but he's made something that they can sit down and relax in. Mm-hmm. And then we get to the beautiful two page spread on pages 12 and 13. Oh yeah. Uh, this is just gorgeous. You've got this great shot of both Hal and Ollie. Paul Pelletier draws a great, bronze age era green arrow mm-hmm. it just looks uh, just the 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 detail of the of the turtleneck the way the hat looks everything about this i mean it's it's flashbacking yeah well but, the, the the look uh, again the look on his jerkin as he's uh, you know it's you can tell that it looks like actual cloth is bunched up and everything it's mm-hmm. really nice but more to the point this is necessary exposition because you're going to have people that were reading Green Lantern, but not reading Green Arrow. So who the heck is this Green Arrow guy? And you're going to have people that were reading Green Arrow that may not necessarily have been reading Green Lantern. And it's just like, well, who's Kyle? So you get, you know, right there. And it doesn't really interrupt the story. It's at a nice natural pace where they're at a point where they would be sitting and talking. Um, page 15. Wow. Uh, Christine's got a huge rack. Um uh-huh. Again, again, my comment, I really like the way Pelletier draws women. And yeah, she is not in any way, shape, or form trying to be subtle with uh, with uh, what she's trying to uh, sell. She wants to sell a little cherry pie, if you know what I'm saying. Now, page 16, uh, Kyle, don't, don't really hold back. Don't tiptoe about it. Just ask him if he's gay or not, because, yeah, this wow. Was, <laughs> this was the thing that sort of... It kind of bugged me in the issue because I don't see Kyle as the kind of person to be like, oh, you don't have any experience with women. Obviously, you must be gay. Now, I don't think it was that overt, but I don't know why his first his first idea would be to jump to the fact that Connor might be homosexual. You know, the thing about Kyle and it's what I love about Kyle at this point in the game is that he is the typical kind of clueless guy in his early 20s. Mm-hmm. You know, he's very hot-headed, as we're about to see. You know, he kind of jumps, you know, <laughs> he kind of goes into the hornet's nest face first. And really, just, he strikes me as that type of guy that would be like, dude, if you're gay, it's cool. And it's not that he's, like, homophobic or anything. No. It's not It's not like that, you know, it's a similar moment, similar kind of, to the issue of The Flash where Wally finds out that the Pied Piper is gay. 
Mm-hmm. And he immediately leaves. It's not that Wally is homophobic and uncomfortable with it, but a bombshell has just been dropped on him and he doesn't really know how to process that mm-hmm. information. And here is kind of like the inverse of that, where Kyle probably is of the opinion that, hey, if he's gay, that's cool. But, you, you know, you can just admit it. It's okay. I don't mind. I'm not going to judge you. Well, so it's kind, of, it's kind of weird. I agree. That's the way I kind of see Kyle. I kind of see him as the person who's not not uncomfortable with it, who doesn't have any hangups about it. But the fact that he automatically jumped the idea that he's gay after, especially right after Connor came out with the idea that I've spent most of my life in a monastery, you know, away from women. So maybe I don't know how to interact with them. That his first, you know, idea would be, well, obviously, well, not obviously that he might be gay. So, but it is, I'm glad that they got it out of the way. And they they actually spelled it out, so people will be going, okay, there won't be a hint of it anywhere else in the book. They'll be like, no, he's straight, he's just not comfortable with dealing with women. Which makes a nice sort of counterbalance for the character of his father, who was one of those people who had a liking for the ladies. The, uh, The fight, yeah, Kyle... Maybe Kyle should have backed down, but at the same time, he's his little diatribe on page 19 is absolutely right. And I love the fact that he takes the ring off mm-hmm. uh, t- to get into it. And more than that, I love Connor's reaction, which is great as he's backfisting the sheriff. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's kind of cool that Kyle held his own, even though Connor probably could have taken everybody because Connor is just that freaking good. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you're never probably going to cover this but uh connor goes up against lady shiva holy cow uh and is pretty much designated like the best martial artist in the dc universe in a couple years after this story nice he is good so but it's it's neat it's neat to see you know just just a nice little bar fight basically in a diner well and this is one of the things that sort of caught me about this book was it was it was the antithesis of the sort of Green Arrow or Green Lantern, Green Arrow run that Adams and O'Neill did, where it was always it was always Hal was who was more of the calm headed, cool headed one, while it was Ollie who was the hot headed one who would get into troubles. And here yeah. we see here we see the antithesis of that, with Kyle being the hot headed one, you know, yelling at the person. In fact, the the top of the the top panel on page nineteen it looks pretty much similar to what something you'd see in the O'Neill run with uh, just being Ollie doing that sort of thing, pointing at someone and telling the man that he can stick it. So I, I see what they're trying to do and I enjoy it. And it doesn't seem out of place for the characters. Uh, the fact that these characters are the antithesis of their previous incarnations is kind of nice to have in the book. Okay, I was I was misremembering. He does not defeat Lady Shiva, but he doesn't die either. <laughs> so I think I think that's a I think that is actually a victory in most people's book if you're going against Lady Shiva. It, it was it was during the storyline that crossed over from uh, it was basically all the books Chuck Dixon was writing at the time. It was Brotherhood of the Fist, which was kind of a martial arts movie uh, as a comic book storyline, which I rather liked quite a bit. So the um, the ending where Kyle uh, goes to the house that he thinks his father lives at. It's kind of ironic that the door knocker is a lantern. Uh, <laughs> kind of like that as a little artistic touch. I, uh, I just caught that. That's 
That's pretty interesting. Uh, they're all bruised up. Those bruises will not last. <laughs> and we, we end with going to Desolation. And I remember getting to this going, oh, yeah, Desolation. You know, that was where, you know, Ollie and, and uh, Hal went. And it was just like one of those things of, I read that issue. And I still get a kick out of that. You know, even even all these years later. But especially at this point where I was still, you know, just a Padawan for lack of a better term in, uh, in this whole, uh, comic book thing. It was just, it was just neat to have context with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I just, it was a great issue. It was, it was just a fantastic. Yeah. And I, I'm, I loved it. And I'm glad, I'm glad that they're trying to interconnect it with the, the old stuff and, but keep it, you know, keep it within the, the concept of the, the books and the characters of the, the time. So they're paying tribute to the uh, the obviously wonderful O'Neill and Adams run, but they're doing their own thing with it. So, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it as well. Um, I guess right now we're going to take another break. Uh, I'm going to put some promos in here for a couple of podcasts. Uh, maybe I'll throw in one for one of Michael's myriad podcasts. And uh, when we come back, Michael is going to be kind enough to give us his synopsis of Green Arrow number 110. Hello, boys and girls. It's your dear old Uncle Joker. We've got an internet access here in Arkham, so I'm doing a little browsing. Hmm. Lolcats. Lolcats. Porn. Lolcats, what's this? Bailey's Batman Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast devoted to everything Dark Knight Detective. Well, Michael Bailey, where's Bailey's Joker Podcast, eh? We'll see about that. Harley, get our things. We're going to Georgia. <laughs> Hey everyone, Michael Bailey here asking you to check out my bi-weekly internet radio show, Bailey's Batman Podcast, or at least I'm asking you to check it out while you still can, until the Joker shows up on my doorstep. Bailey's Batman Podcast is a hodgepodge type show where I discuss all aspects of the Dark Knight's history. Comics, movies, animation, even trading cards and action figures. Everything Batman related is fair game, and yes, that does include the villains, which includes the Joker so he won't kill me. New episodes drop every other Tuesday over at www.baileysbatmanpodcast.com. The site also has links to the iTunes page, the RSS feed, my Twitter handle if you're into the social media thing, and the Bailey's Batman Podcast Facebook page. Bailey's Batman Podcast is a proud member of the Batman Podcast Connection, which you can find at batmanpodcastconnection.wordpress.com. I really hope that's the UPS guy. Why can't I have Batman in my basement? Hi, this is Professor Allen. And when I'm not listening to an awesome podcast, like this one, I'm co-hosting an awesome podcast, The Book Guy Show. Every week, we cover book news, book reviews, comic books, audiobooks, audio dramas, and podcasts. Search for The Book Guys Show on iTunes or come visit us 
at bookguys.ca. And we're back. So Michael is here to give us, like I said, the synopsis of Green Arrow number 110. Take it away. Well, this book was cover dated July 1996, like the previous one. It was released on May 22nd, 1996. The story title, outside of being, uh, you know, Hard Traveling Heroes, The Next Generation Part 2, is Desolation Again. And every time I see the word desolation, suddenly I'm hearing uh, the My Chemical Romance version of Desolation Row from the Watchmen soundtrack. Uh, Chuck Dixon was the writer. Rodolfo DiMaggio was the penciler. Robert Campanella inked it. Lee Luridge, God, I hope that's how you pronounce it, is the colorist. Veteran John Costanza is the letterer. And got to do this for Andy over at Hey Kids. Darren Vincenzo was the mayor of this particular book. Kyle and Connor ride in style towards the town of Desolation, as that is where Kyle's father supposedly moved to years ago. The boys talk about their predecessor's time in the town, which was kind of bad, but are shocked to discover that the town has a spiffy new sign that declares it a honey of a town, which kind of throws them off. The town, at this point, is far from desolate. In fact, it is rather spiffy, though Kyle feels there is a shortage of good taste to be found. They stop at a reference to Denny O'Neill. I mean, they stop at O'Shaughnessy's to grab a bite and find out from the woman behind the counter that ever since a group of folks sued the mining company and got her major cash awards, the entire town is sue happy. Especially, you know, when they all got back from the mosaic where, oh, wait, that (laughs) probably didn't happen now. In fact, the woman behind the counter is only working there until her settlement from Bonita Cosmetics comes in. Apparently their product made her colorblind. On their way out of the eatery, they talk about why Kyle's father would be in desolation, and he is there at any rate. The car nearly hits them, and lawyers seem to pop out of nowhere to represent them, but Kyle and Connor turn them down. Meanwhile, the local law enforcement sees this and thinks it is awful uncommon odd that these people wouldn't want to sue somebody. A mysterious judge steps forward and says that Kyle and Connor are there for trouble and orders the cops to put round-the-clock surveillance on them as the town doesn't need no reformers to mess with a citizen's right to redress. That moment, Kyle and Connor are checking in with another cop to see if they can find Kyle's dad. Cop tells them that he never lived there, which Kyle totally buys, but Connor totally sees through. They talk about why Connor is helping Kyle. Apparently Connor believes that given their daddy issues, they have something in common. Connor tells Kyle of the conversation he had with Ollie while Ollie was in the monastery, and this leads to the two bonding. As they decide to hunt down some serious leads, the local cops watch them. Elsewhere, Eddie fires, tries to find out more about Aaron Rayner, and hits a wall with an old friend, and there's a joke with a gun and a fortune cookie and testicles. I really I really like Eddie. Uh, <laughs> back in de- That's actually in my notes. Uh, back in Desolation, Kyle and Connor have gotten into costume and run afoul of the cops again. A fight breaks out, and the boys escape via a construct. They discuss having to fight the cops when suddenly an armored mercenary pops up and attacks them because it's the 90s. The armored man's name is Hatchet because it's the 90s. And apparently he has the Bloodsport level power to materialize weapons 
which he uses to open fire on GL and GA. The fight escalates quickly, and the cops get involved, but finally GA takes out Hatchet with an arrow to the hand. Hatchet informs Arrow that he has orders to bring them both in, but that doesn't mean they both have to be alive. Kyle surprises the mercenary and slams him with a construct gauntlet, with Arrow proving that he did study Taekwon Leap in his various martial arts studies and gives Hatchet a boot to the head. Boot to the head. Before they can figure out what is going on, a man in a trench coat approaches them. Has Kyle found his dad? Has Connor discovered how to deal with his own father issues? Will Danny Dallas kill his stepfather? Will Connie continue courting Father Flotsky? All these and more will be answered on the next episode of So. I wonder if Kyle would ask if Billy Crystal was gay. Well, there was no burying the lead on that. That's one, true. Was there? <laughs> I like this issue. This is this was one of the earliest times that I've read uh, the Connor Hawk Green Arrow, and I Chuck Dixon, I think, is one of those great underrated. Uh, well, he's not really underrated, but now he's kind of he's relegated to the secondary comic book issues. I know he's writing. Uh, I think he's writing for IDW right now, doing the. Is he doing the G.I. Joe stuff? But he had an incredible run doing stuff with DC back in the 90s. I mean, his Batman and his Robin books were just some of the best stuff out there. And uh, this Green Arrow book, you know, fits in right right really well with it. I mean, the man took a horrible concept like JL Ape, <laughs> where basically all of the Justice League-related annuals in 1999 had ape themes to them because, you know, monkeys sell, and actually used that as something that he could then later use down the road in his Nightwing run. And that's just, to me, that's just amazing. You know, wow. Just the fact that he, but he can write anything. I mean, his... Not only is he writing, you know, G.I. Joe stuff, but he, he writes a lot of Simpsons comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of his early works in the late 80s was he adapted The Hobbit into comic book form. Yeah, I was reading up on that, and uh, yeah, that's surprising. That's something I, I might actually want to go check out, because, you know, so obviously I'm, The Hobbit's big now. I'm pretty sure that he could write anything. I mean, his early, uh, his early, early work in, like, Airboy, <clears throat> uh, which I managed to find a run of, is very good as well. And uh, I, it, the great thing about him, is, as we're going to see... Uh, is that he can he can sneak in political commentary, but it doesn't feel like political commentary. Mm-hmm. It feels like a good gag, but you're kind of getting the sense of how he feels about certain things. So well, we'll we'll get to we'll get to a part here actually in this book that I've got to I've got to praise him for his uh, sort of political commentary. But starting out with a cover, this is obviously another homage cover. It's uh, an homage to the uh, Green Lantern Green Arrow uh, cover. I think it was issue number eighty-seven. Except in this place, it was uh, John Stewart in the uh, role where Connor is holding up a uh, Green Lantern Hal Hal Jordan, and it was the I think it was the first issue with uh, John Stewart as the new Green Lantern. So uh, it's a nice it's a nice cover. It's kind of I don't know about the white background. I don't know if it'd be better served with a uh, actual background in it, but I think the white kind of makes it stand out, especially the green colors. So. Yeah, so, you know, you got green and brown, and you've got black and green and white. I mean, it's just, uh, I think a white, I think the stark background uh, works for it, especially for the logo. 
which mm-hmm. looks fantastic as well. Oh yeah, that really pops out with the white with the white background there. So uh, I like uh, a general thought about uh, Dimaggio's art. I like it. It's a nice, it's a nice sort of uh, melding or a sort of in between of the uh, sort of more angular look of uh, Daryl Banks that I've got over in the Green Lantern and the more uh, smooth lines of uh, Pelletier. Starting out with the beginning, they're obviously harking back to what happened in Desolation with Green Arrow and Green Lantern in the early books, and it's nice to see them drawing the characters here. Page two, I I always liked, even though it was completely and wholly impractical car, I always liked the Primeth Prowler, which is obviously <laughs> the car that uh, Kyle's kind of ringed up. And it, it, it harkens back to those old sort of, uh, those old sort of, uh, not derby cars, but those old 1950s cars with the sort of uh, wheels outside the uh, wheel wells. They're not inside the car. It's a neat looking car. And I, I like that Kyle, you know, ringed up a spiffy car for them to go in. I, like well, I also like that that either Dixon in the directions of the art uh, of the script or DiMaggio just on his own or maybe even editorial told him that they're carrying over the fact that Kyle does these types of constructs mm-hmm. that, you know, he will do so he won't do just a car. He'll do a kind of bizarre off the wall car just because that's how his imagination works. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, gl- I'm glad they do that because I know that the sort of one idea that they wanted to put forth for Kyle was that he does these vastly more elaborate constructs than just the scissors or the fists or all the things that was pretty much known for Hal doing. So I like that here. Um, Did you want to have any mention of uh, the entire of Desolation being here? Did you want to get into that or? What do you mean? Oh, about the, the fact of Desolation... The, uh, the what we talked about in earlier about the uh, town. Oh yeah. Oh okay. I'm sorry. I, I apologize. <laughs> no my, problem. My brain's not. It, it's early in the morning. Um, it, it's kind of funny because you covered this. Mm-hmm. And I completely very, it, forgot about it. Honestly, in the first uh, in the first uh, couple episodes of your uh, of this show, even Desolation was brought back at the very beginning of the Gerard Jones run. Uh, Kai, you know, when Hal was on his walkabout trying to figure out who he was and what he wanted to be, blah, blah, blah. I'm I'm lost. I'm sensitive 90s man. Which is kind of making fun of it, but not really, because I love those issues, like, a lot. But, uh, you know, the, he heads back to Desolation, meets, you know, the, the, the pretty widow woman. And eventually Desolation is taken by the rogue guardian and put on Oa and is part of Mosaic. Um... None of that is mentioned here. Mm-hmm. And that is either a conscious omission on the part of everyone involved, or they just didn't think about it. Uh, which is what I'm kind of leaning towards, that it's not like they're just like, oh, that that never happened. More of, well, you know, a lot of the people reading this book probably never read those issues. Uh, which is true, because to be fair, even though I read them like early on, when I first read this in 96, you know, it was six years after that storyline happened and I had completely forgotten about it. And it only occurred to me when I was doing my notes for these issues that, wait a second, you know, I reread those early, you know, Gerard Jones Green Lanterns to do an episode of Views with Thomas DJ. And then you covered them so well 
in the opening days of this podcast that it's still kind of fresh in my mind. And I'm just like, how are they not talking about this? But then I realized, oh, yeah, I'm a comic fan. This is what I do. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, and you also postulated that the whole zero hour thing could have reset it as well. But, you know, it, it, for this story, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it's continuity nitpick that you could focus in on and it could tear you up inside. But if you just go with the story, it, it works. Maybe there's another town called Desolation and it's just a different town. You know, it, it, it also could be that maybe, you know, the town was put back and everybody was made to forget everything that happened. But um, mm -hmm. there is a great reference, though. O'Shaughnessy's, which is the fast food joint they go to. Mm -hmm. Sergius O'Shaughnessy was not only a character from Norman Mailer's The Deer Park. It was an early pen name that Denny O'Neill used in his early comic book writing days. Interesting. Uh, and I got and I asked him, uh, I didn't know about the Norman Mailer reference until I met uh, Denny at a like I know him. I'm using his <laughs> like I met I met Denny O'Neill at a at Dragon Con a bunch of years ago. And after a panel, I walked up to him. I go, I got to ask you a question. I know this is going to sound weird, but where did the name Sergius O'Shaughnessy come from? Uh, you know, that you used as a pen name. And he smiled. He's like, oh, yeah. And he told me the story of how he had been reading the book and all that kind of stuff and seen a play because I think they did a play version of it. He's like, so I just use that as my pen name. And I'm just like, that is awesome to know. <laughs> so. uh, speaking back on those uh, on the two page splash here, I am really impressed, though, with DiMaggio's artwork on this page, because mm -hmm. this is a lot of detail that he put in this uh, the this two thirds uh, two-page panel. Uh, the buildings are all a great perspective, and that even goes off all the way back in the background. And, uh, this is just some really impressive art. It, it had to take a long time to draw this, so it, it's it's good artwork here, so I'm pretty impressed. And there's a roundabout in the middle of the town mm -hmm. with a giant statue. Yeah, that's, that's very old. That sort of uh, gives it that sort of... Uh, you know, 1950s type feel, you know, this exactly. sort of... Oh, absolutely. So I like that. Even though that the the entire raison d'etre, or however you want to say that, the reason for the town being is all very 90s, with it being very Sue happy and everyone being <laughs> lawyered up. So it's a nice contrast there. And of course, we get to the uh, lawyers on what page five, just jumping out of the woodwork when a simple almost accident happens so yeah i think this i think this may be a bit of uh dixon commentary his, yeah dixon working his political commentary in but it's it's done in such a subtle manner that it's not like bill o'reilly smacking you around telling you how to think so <laughs> which is which is always a good thing i mean not bill o'reilly smacking you around but that's not the case uh the judge you can tell from just the introduction of him, that he's an evil character. Just the way he's drawn, he looks... He just looks bad. He's wearing his robes and he's not in court. Mm -hmm. that, that tells you that he really likes his job. God, that sheriff has a serious schnoz, doesn't he? <laughs> he's got a Jimmy Durante nose. That's I was about to say. <laughs> oh. That's um, amazing. On page seven, where they approach the uh, police officer, uh, in that third panel... Uh, Connor automatically tells Kyle that he was lying. And, you know, Kyle's like, how do you know? And Kyle says, I learned to read these things in the monastery. His breathing changed when he heard your father's name. 
I like the fact that Connors learned these kind of things, and this is an actual this is an actual thing. There's this uh, science called kinesiology, and uh, when I was in college, I was taking I was thinking about getting a job at what's called the OSBI, which is the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, and kind of doing maybe a CSI type thing. And, you know, working as a criminalist. And one of the courses I took to try and get in this job was, uh, you know, an investigative research or not uh, principles of interviewing. And what the professor was teaching me was how to look the way people hold themselves uh, when they're in conversations and changes in their demeanor and changes in the way that they look or breathe or whatever. And how that can sometimes lead to them being deceitful. So the fact that Connor notices this and that, you know, Dixon puts in the book is really kind of a nice real world thing bringing into it. I like that. It's also nice to not see Tim Roth doing it <laughs> on that very, very, very short lived show, unfortunately. Oh, the lie to me. Uh, mm-hmm. Wow. Um, one thing I wanted to ask the flashback with uh, Connor and Ollie. Since I'm not that familiar with the Green Arrow run, did the two characters know that they were father and son during this, or was it found out later after? I mean, because it kind of it kind of looks like that one of them might know that they are related. I honestly, I, I have not read those early issues where Connor was introduced. Okay, uh, I, I kind of wish I, I I have most of them. But again, that's kind of where a couple of the holes in my collection, and really and odd and truly, those early issues, like in the '90s of Green Arrow, are hard to find for some reason. Hmm. The whole Crossroads storyline, which goes into Zero Hour, and then the stuff that happens post Zero Hour, is very—it's just for some reason those aren't in the Fifty Cent bins, and I don't know if they were so underordered that they weren't, you know, like you know they didn't so. Uh, be fruitful and multiply like other books did in the, around mm-hmm. this time period. So I really don't know. I'm going to let you down on that. Okay. Well, that's no problem because you know I've had some people write in you know when I had questions, especially back in the issues where uh, Hal was facing off with Kyle again for the second time, and Ollie came in to uh, help the pseudo Justice League out, and he was wearing essentially Connor's uniform, and I was like why is Ollie dressed up as Connor and why is he not dead? I thought he was dead. So, but there you go. Um, I can in this town and again, hearkening back to the, the whole homosexual thing, I can see why this town of sort of rednecky cops would be looking at two guys arguing with each other, one guy in a black leather jacket and one guy in a sort of, well, kind of pink shirt both pretty boys, you know, holding each other, and especially on page 11 with uh, Kyle putting his arm around uh, Connor, how they might be thinking that, you know, there's a little bit going on and they may not like the stupid people in their town. So, <laughs> Plus, they're, 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 they're small-town cops. So well, that's exactly. I mean, they're, they're the people who are obviously going to come to the conclusion negatively that these two people are obviously some homosexual. We don't like them people around here. Well, especially later when they're cosplaying. So, <laughs> well, thankfully, you know, Kyle left the gimp suit at home. <laughs> uh, 
I'm trying to remember on this next page where Eddie meets up with this one guy. He looks like a familiar cat, like a, just the way his hair is cut and it's the sort of greasy look of him. He reminds me of some actor in like a Quentin Tarantino movie, and I can't say it's got a, a, not exactly you know like a like a photorealistic version of it, but it's kind of like a Steve Buscemi type character. That's that's who I kind of thought. I I thought Steve Buscemi and Crispin Glover sort of <laughs> uh, sort of mishmash. That would that be one the, freaky kid with the with the yeah oh with the scraggly hair and all that. But yeah, Eddie. I like Eddie. I I enjoy his character, and I've only seen him in two books so far. I, I want to learn more about this character. He looks fun. Yeah, this is like the the Greedo scene in uh, Star Wars, mm-hmm. except you know Eddie's going to shoot him with a crotch. So yeah. you you could probably say that Han would shot him in the crotch as well, but no. Then we get to the uh, the introduction of uh, Kyle to the police, or Kyle and Connor to the police, and. Of course, Kyle has to, uh, rather than talk with the police, he decides to ring Construct up a, a pretty spiffy jet cycle. I, I like the look of it. Uh, but then, yeah, we get 90s era villains. Or, I guess, not really villains, but, you know, antagonists and, and, to them. And I poke fun because I love this era. Uh Tom Panarese, who hosts Taking Flight, Pop Culture mm-hmm. Affidavit, the very excellent new show, In Country. Yes, I just covering... checked out the first two episodes of that. Really good stuff. I'm looking uh, he, forward to that. He and I kind of have a back-and-forth gag on Facebook when we're talking, where kind of like uh, Thomas DJ, hey Thomas, uh, has, you know, it's Planet Haney, Jake, it's Planet Haney. Mm-hmm. We have, it's the 90s, Jake. It's the 90s. So. And this is definitely a 90s character with this goofy sort of almost Cyclops helmet with a sort of bicycle helmet looking thing. And the, the, I guess the Cyclops visors. And he's able, for whatever reason, who knows, to pull up energy weapons or pull weapons out of wherever. Uh, it, it's... And he's got, I don't know what the hell he has on the back, but he's got some sort of damn weird tube thing. What the hell is it with tubes on the back of your armor in the 90s? It's, oh. Well, well, to to be fair, you know, if we were reading this, if we were covering this as it was coming out, we probably wouldn't even notice. That's true. Uh, You know, it's kind of like now two characters sitting there talking for 22 pages and the artwork is pretty much statted the whole way through is now becoming kind of a, a cliche of the two thousands. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of funny to look back on that stuff and see that it's a cliche uh, instead of just the new stuff that's coming out. But it, you know, I, I have to say it's colorful mm-hmm. that, that, I mean, that, that that's an interesting color scheme. I would not have expected purple and yellow. Uh, but it's it's an interesting contrast to the the heroes. So, and to be fair, it's it's quite an exciting action scene, especially when Kyle whips up his guns 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love the fact that his shield on page 19 is his mask, basically. Mm-hmm. Well, and I've noticed Kyle, you know, they've kind of set forth the idea that Kyle, when he's doing his constructs, tries not to do the same construct every time. And the last time we saw him doing a shield, or at least I saw him doing a shield, was in the, uh, I think, issue 75 where he's fighting against Graven, and he actually constructed a shield that was the uh, Dark Star symbol. So I thought that was kind of neat. But yeah, I, that's another thing I didn't catch. One thing I did want to point out was the little snippet that they had kind of thrown in here uh, about uh, Ollie and Connor talking at the monastery, where uh, the one panel where they're talking about Desolation, and Connor asks Ollie, so Desolation was run by right-wing extremists, and Ollie says, bad idea to try and pigeonhole pure evil, Connor. Right wing, left wing, no wing. Jack boots are one size fits all. Oh, yeah, definitely. That, I mean, if Oliver Queen was written during the O'Neill run as this kind of character, I think I would have championed that character to no end. Because the one thing that that kind of turned me off about the Oliver Queen character was that he was just such a left-wing stereotype and i understand if you want to make him politically left and have him be that sort of way that's fine but when it when that's the majority of his character it it would it would take me out as much as if it were a completely right-wing character if it were you know the say the question written by uh ditko and it being that sort of right-wing feel so I don't know. No, Chuck Dixon, uh, despite the fact that I'm familiar with some of his politics, uh, and and while his his characters will have kind of a more action hero type feel to it uh, when he's writing that type of stuff, I never get the sense that he's trying to impose his own like assertions like this is how it should be, uh, which is one of the reasons why I like him so much, knowing that he is. I don't want to call, I don't want to pigeonhole him in the conservative because obviously he has, you know, issues with that sort of thing. You know, if mm-hmm. I'm going by what he, you know, by the material that we're reading today. Uh, but at, at the same time, you know, it does seem like he, he kind of goes towards that direction, but it's never implied at any point in his writing that the other side is wrong and his side is right. I mean, the only people that really come off looking bad here. Uh, in, in all honesty, are lawyers. And especially in the middle of this great action scene, all these lawyers are coming out of the woodwork again on the uh, bottom of page... Uh, what is that? 14? Yeah, bottom oh, yeah. of page they... 14. Unlawful arrest, police brutality, reckless mm-hmm. endangerment. I mean, it's just... It's it's hilarious. And kind of... It, 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 it's I mean, you can see it in the movie happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is another reason why I like it so much. But, you know, we get the... Uh get the takedown and i i do love the final panel of connor you know at least getting in his his little final blow and then we get the uh, sort of revealed there's uh someone here who might be uh related to kyle and kyle may have found his dad so uh, you know it's a it's a that's a nice cliffhanger ending um the whole idea of kyle going after his dad and it actually sort of interacting with things that had happened in the previous Green Lantern, Green Arrow issues. It was kind of interesting to tie it up. But again, the artwork was really good and the characters just phenomenal. Chuck Dixon writing them really great. So 
the uh, the letters pages in both of these books, I had completely forgotten that DC went to this kind of format mm-hmm. this for their letters been, pages. This has only been a couple of a couple of months that they've been doing this. They used to be doing this, you know, the simple letter pages with the, you know, the different uh, mastheads. You know, I think it was ringside for this one. But yeah, this is. I don't know if I like it all that much. I mean, I guess it's more colorful, but... Eh. But apparently they started in this issue of Green Arrow giving away the Emerald, which is the Green Arrow equivalent of the Baldi. Uh, yeah. Maybe they wanted more letters, I don't know. But an Emerald was a copy of the issue in which the letter appears, signed by the artist and the editor. Well, that's kind of neat. Do you want to take a quick look at any of the ads in here? There's actually some pretty cool ones uh, mm-hmm. in the Green Arrow and the Green Lantern one because Green Arrow and Green Lantern had kind of different audiences, yep. so the ads would be a little different. There's a Phantom ad mm-hmm. for that movie, um, and I'm reminded, one, how much I like that movie, and two, how much that catchphrase <laughs> of Slam Evil ruined the marketing of that film. Oh, yes, because that was... I need to go rewatch that. I think that... I don't know whether or not that's on instant watch on netflix i'm wanted to say it is because i was browsing through it because i heard i think i heard you mention it on a certain show either on comics monthly monday or something and i wanted to go check it out again but yeah billy zane uh he was pretty impressive in this movie we have an ad for aztec the multiple man your guide to aztec as a matter of fact helmet provides vision related powers enhances mental abilities looks cool this was a Grant Morrison book and Mark Miller book. Mm-hmm. Um, this was another one that I have had a. I I think I have a full run, but finding issues of this book was incredibly difficult because it was so underordered. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's surprising, but, you know. Now nowadays, with the writers being uh, Grant Morrison and Mark Miller, who are like the hot properties of today. Well, it, yeah, but this was this was right before JLA. Mm-hmm. So, it, and in fact, one of the last issues of Aztec was him getting inducted into the JLA. And I remember buying that and ha- there being plenty of copies of that to be found. Mm-hmm. But And the first issue kind of had a lot of copies. But those middle issues, that's why I haven't read the series yet. Not that I have an overwhelming desire to, but still. Yeah. Uh, Legends of the Dead Earth. Now, I was going to ask you, you know, I've read... <laughs> Very few of these. I think I've read, of course, the Guy Gardner one and the Green Lantern one. What is up with these multiple Superman? They all have different powers of Superman. One okay. flies, one... Uh, I haven't read this since it came out. Okay. Because I kind of read these because I was required to almost. You know, it's mm-hmm. like I was reading the books at the time. They were in my box. I buy them, but I was not a big fan. This, this was when... The theme, uh, the theme annuals were really yeah. kind of, kind of on their way out. I mean, we would get a, we would get a couple more years, actually three more years of them, mm-hmm. but at the same time, there was kind of diminishing returns because you had you had like the Elseworlds annuals, which were cool, and then you had the Year One annuals, which were awesome, and then you had Legends of the Dead Earth, which were like, huh? And then next year was uh, Pulp Heroes. Yeah, Pulp Heroes with My Greatest Adventure and Young Romance. And then they cut out like almost all of the annuals and just had JLA annuals, 
with Ghosts in 1998, and then JL Ape. Yeah. Planet DC in 2000, where they introduced a bunch of international characters, which were pretty awful. Looking forward to that. No, you're not. No, I'm not. not. <laughs> sarcasm doesn't translate well. Um, no, I got you were being sarcastic. I was just reaffirming <laughs> the fact that, no, you're not. Looking yes, that, that, that is true. I uh, got an ad for the return of Barry Allen trade paperback. Mm-hmm. Which was an awesome, awesome storyline. But oh, yeah. how'd you like that AOL ad? <laughs> oh, the yes. Oh, that that a that AOL and DC had their own little website, and I don't know how. I don't know if I ever visited that. You know, when I had dial-up internet, but I can't imagine it being too impressive. Well, it was still kind of like this when I got online in '98. Uh, the, the the website was still. I mean, the the, the pictures obviously were different because uh, they would kind of update that. Mm-hmm. But I remember being on AOL in in '98, and uh, this was, I guess, at the at that point they'd gone to a monthly thing instead of here where you pay by the hour. Apparently. Oh yeah, yeah. I remember getting the disc where I was like, oh, you can get forty three hours of internet time, and yeah, forty three forty three hours of internet time. Especially when you're paying, you know, uh, twenty bucks for that, it's just awful. But however, you could—they were. I was very surprised, uh, and I had completely forgotten that DC really jumped on this as a way to have people interact with the writers. I mean, here we've uh, got—you can apparently do a chat with Chuck Dixon and Ron Mars. Mm Uh, Alex Ross, Mark Wade, Dan Raspler, uh, James Robinson came on, Grant Morrison came on, and I love the fact that his credits are the Invisibles and Flex Mentallo. That that must have been a wild night on AOL. Um, uh, yeah, I'm certain. I'm certain people were just breaking the internet to get to that. Yeah, and then Chuck Dixon. Michael Leyland will never speak to us again. <laughs> uh, and then Chuck Dixon and Graham Nolan for Detective Seven Hundred on July twenty fourth. So. I remember these ads. I remember seeing these ads and them registering. But now that I think about it, it's like really strange. Uh, just to think back at the uh, at this stage of comic fandom on the internet, and how what DC's site looks like today, it's just it's just kind of funny. It's, you know, we're almost twenty years out, and it's it's a whole different world. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I'm moving over to the Green Green Arrow book. Uh, pay-per-view was big unfortunately jim carrey was a part of pay-per-view and we've got the pay-per-view for ace ventura when nature calls i was never a big jim carrey fan neither was i his humor never got to me and i think he was the one thing that sort of well he wasn't the one thing but he was one of the things that made the batman forever movie basically a, a product of its time you know, I think I think having Jim Carrey in that movie was, you know, squarely set it in the 90s and it it doesn't age the movie well. But yeah, Ace Ventura, that doesn't age well as I either. And you can really tell the difference in the audiences they're trying to reach with the back covers on the Green Lantern. You have the 
Batman animated series, Eskimo Pie, and Welch's trading card offer. Mm -hmm. And on the back of Green Arrow, good and cocky with a pulp and Tracy Bonham CD ad. Yeah. See, and this, oddly enough, I didn't really see that many of the CD or Sam Goody ads, except for stuff like in uh, Vertigo comics. I mean, this was more of a Vertigo thing. So obviously, yeah, the the two books are looking for you know different readers basically yeah and they would do that dc i mean when when i reread underworld unleashed recently or a couple years ago wow was that like three years ago oh my god um time sure flies i i got all the crossovers out because i had like 98 percent of them and it was kind of funny to see the difference between like you know you had the superman books and the batman books but then you got like shadow of the bat or the specter or you know um fate and all that and how the ads were more alternative Mm -hmm. it's like you had bloodhound gang ads for their um first album which i think was called use your fingers and stuff like that and it's just like meanwhile over in the kitty verse and the one ad that i do have to mention because it is so very 90s and it's in both books i think it's in color in one of the books is the back inside cover when he says cut, he fragging means cut. Lobo goes to Hollywood, and uh, it's a nice it's a nice drawing. I think uh, Christian Almay does a good job with Lobo. It looks it looks better than the Simon Bisley kind of artwork that they had for a lot of the Lobo miniseries. But uh, Lobo, just the fact that he was supposed to be kind of a a parody of the Wolverine character taken to the you know you know, turned up all the way to 11 and that he actually became popular, even though he was supposed to be a parody just it says something about the nineties to me. Yeah, it was, um, at this time when these books came out, I was going to this shop called the blue koala, which eventually, uh, changed its name to absolute comics. Anyways, it was a buddy of mine who owned it, which was a terrible idea because it just became a hangout for our friends. So, but, uh, he, Tom, the guy that owned the shop was loved the Lobo title, loved how irreverent it was. And if you read it, it was very satirical as handled by like Alan Grant, but from a distance, it does look very, and I'm not saying it's like the, the, the finest ever thing ever, but I, uh, but from a distance, you look at this and go, Oh God. Really? Okay. We'll mm-hmm. go. But yeah, th- that pretty much does it for the books. Um, we've got two more books to cover, and we're going to uh, take a break, travel through time, and come back next week, uh, where we'll be covering the uh, the second part, or the third part and fourth part of the Green Arrow and Green Lantern crossover. Uh, I'm assuming you'll be able to make it for that next week, because it will be happening next week, right? Yes, I will. I will be hanging out right in front of my computer until then. All right. Awesome. Well, that does it. Oh, I did want to mention one thing. This is these have been collected in trade, but it's probably one of those out of print trades that you can't find and probably be better served just tracking down the issues. It was reprinted in Green Lantern Emerald Allies. But yeah, like I said, probably best thing tracking down the issues. So, But thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Michael, for coming on. 
and we will see you here in seven days with another episode of just one of the guys a greenlander podcast hosted by the two true freaks podcast network you've been listening to just one of the guys a greenlander podcast hosted by yours truly sean Ingram. all images stories and music are copyright their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended this podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to know it. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcome, too as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fight. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting out. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, the new rule 2, and you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook, and now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new DeMontecourt contract. But it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Mafia Wars group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greenlander podcast. I also think certain writers fall in love with the villains they're writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, I can honestly I can honestly say I think Jeff Johns is in that mindset where he is really enamored with taking his villains and making them so relatable that it's I think it kind of takes away from them as villains. In all honesty. Mm-hmm. Well, in, in going to, you know, what we're covering, the, the whole Green Lantern thing, when Gerard Jones was writing Sinestro, he was he was definitely a villain. In, mm-hmm. in Emerald Dawn 2, he was a megalomaniacal, almost Hitler-like dictator. And that was awesome. And But that was an interesting character, and it was an interesting foil for Hal as the Green Lantern. But I don't know why Johns thinks it's more interesting to have him as a flawed hero because I, I, I honestly think it, it kind of, you know I was watching on the new frontier disc I don't know if it was on the second disc or on the first disc but they were interviewing a bunch of people about uh, you know the villains of the JLA and one of the things that they talked about Jim Kruger who wrote uh, Earth X, and he also wrote a uh, a thing a, a series called uh, he he did he scripted he either co-wrote scripted or just provided the dialogue for that Justice series. Okay, that Alex Ross painted a couple years ago. Yeah. Okay, that was like ten years ago, but still. <laughs> um, and he was talking about how that there was this. And I forget the person's name, but there was a like a filmmaking class or a writing theory where basically, it, you know, you you looked at the villains, 
you kind of looked at the villains and tried to give them so make them give them so much motivation so you would understand them better. Like, you know, in, instead of just saying I want to take over the world, it's I want to make the world a better place because I am the hero of my own story. And I think a, a certain generation of writers saw that and said, "Yeah, we're we're going to explore these these villains, and we're going to we're going to see what makes them tick, and we're going to we're going to give them believable motivations." And I think that somewhere in that, they're like, "You know, these guys are kind of right. Wow, you know, you know, maybe maybe they maybe they're writer than the hero is, and then suddenly it's not they're the bad guy." They're just another character with a different viewpoint. The hero's got to stop them because in the grand scheme of things, it's bad. But they're not really bad people. To some extent, and I'm going to sort of, uh, and you approach this a lot uh, on From Christ to Crisis, and, or talking about Lex Luthor. That's nice to kind of work that in because you have a prolonged storyline going on with Luthor. I mean, you've got 75 years, well... Not 75 years of the character of Luthor, but you've got 75 years of Superman. And to instill a bit of that in the character is nice. But to change him from someone who has machinations about overthrowing and killing Superman to someone who you think, well, his machinations are actually probably in the right, do a disservice for the character. And it takes away, like you said, the purdy evil part of this character and makes him bad guys shouldn't be shouldn't be someone that you would be agreeing with like really almost any of the time well if you look at like um elliot s magan had the, had kind of a, a read about his thoughts on luther and it's and it's that you know if superman hadn't come along lex uh could have been somebody and john's kind of took that same tact with the character that the reason why Lex went bad was that Superman came along and he just couldn't handle it. So, but if but if Lex, uh, but if Superman hadn't come along, Lex could have cured cancer. And what that basically says is is that it's all Superman's fault. Mm-hmm. And that's a really crappy way to uh, to set up a rivalry between two characters. It's you know. Lex is just damaged goods. And to to say that, well, it was Superman that pushed him over the edge, I mean, he, he would have been a bastard anyways. Would he have been a bastard to the extent that he, you know, that he, that he became? Probably. 